But, you know, I'm, I'm also a big believer that when we get to the other side of this chasm, that um, we're in for some extraordinary time. So I think the, what the chasm is doing is it's clearing the underbrush of all that free money. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast, real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. So the other day I was, I, I came across an old quote, I think I'd seen it before, uh, from uh, Winston Churchill. And he said, if you are going through hell, keep going. And uh, I found that kind of inspiring, given the environment that we're in right now and the kinds of things that we're seeing. So just to, to recap, we're sitting right now of this recording in the first couple of weeks of April of 2023. And, you know, nothing much is happening uh, other than the fact that in the last few weeks, we've seen Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse uh, kind of poof. Uh, and uh, we've had concerns about the regional banking system in the United States, which accounts for maybe three quarters of commercial real estate debt. That's important. And that's serious, especially as we're considering that 400 billion in CMBS is due in 2023. And suddenly we're going from practically free money to six or 7% money, depending on how much more the Fed and the central banks continue to increase what they're doing. At the same time, we have a second storm happening at the same time, which is the actual office occupancy, butts and seats in cities like New York is still half of what it was in 2019. We don't know how that's going to evolve and, and whatever amount of railing about how people have to come into the office so far, we're not seeing 100% coming back for anytime soon. So there is a transition that's happening there and you're seeing a markdown of value in, in, in some assets of 20 to 25%. There haven't been a lot of transactions, but you've seen high profiled uh, giving back of the keys and strategic defaults from little companies like Columbia Property Trust, Blackstone, uh, Brooksfield, and others. These are definitely the very definition of challenging times and a time where a, a different kind of leadership is required, a time when real estate investors really prove themselves out. This is the time where people start to stand out. Uh, so I was really thrilled when uh, one of our members, RXR Realty, Scott Reckler, uh, agreed to come on and, and talk a bit about it. I think Scott's been more transparent about what his strategy is and how he's managing through tough times than anyone and has been very open about those assets that he is strategically pulling back from. So I wanted to talk a little bit about his thinking and where we're going over the next couple of years. So thank you so much, Scott, for joining me on the AFR podcast. Gunnar, it's great to be here. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So why don't we start with your take on what we're going through right now. What is happening to real estate now that maybe is different than just a simple soft landing? Yeah, so I think you framed it um, pretty well in the in the beginning, and I, I appreciate your Winston Churchill quote. I frequently will turn to uh, Churchill quotes to uh, get myself through difficult times, uh, or uh, maybe some uh, Teddy Roosevelt quotes or FDR quotes, or you know, in that mix there. But the um, you know, I, th I think this is a uh, an interesting moment in time, and um, as you referred to uh, the failure of some of those banks, um, not necessarily surprised to me that there was some financial shock because when you raise interest rates as fast as the Fed has raised interest rates and you look through history, there's always some form of financial shock. And so I've been you know, speaking to my investors and my team about that for some time. This question as to uh, when, where, and how big um, when they happen. And I think what we've seen um, with the, the initial uh, you know, uh, bank failures and, and, and liquidity challenges there Right, it's really driven by the duration mismatch between the the short term uh, 
uh, use of the deposits and the long-term the dated investments on the on the treasuries. And so that I think that duration issue and the um, the unrealized losses um, in the banking system, particularly the regional banking system, um, is 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 still really meaningful. I mean, I've seen numbers of things like uh, two trillion dollars of unrealized losses against you know total market cap of whatever two point two trillion dollars or something for all the banks. So th- I think you know we're this is the beginning, right? This is the first inning of this. I would say. Um, you know, I think that this is sort of, uh, you know, when you look back in history, there's never really one shock. There's multiple shocks. And let's remember that Bear Stearns happened just about, you know, uh, around this time of year. But it wasn't until a year later that Lehman Brothers happened. And there was a lot of things that happened in between. Right. And so they, they tend to set off different um, issues and reflect underlying issues that that exist. And the next, I think, phase here really, though, is. More, more about the credit um, than the duration, right? Which is that there's a there's going to be credit challenges and strain um, that uh, that underlying assets, real estate assets, LBO, um, you know, venture, uh, private equity, um, that are, are going to be uh, coming to fruition, driven primarily by the the spike in uh, in interest rates, and you know, I, I frequently. Uh, look back and say that to me, this reminds me more of the SNL crisis of the 80s and into the early 90s than the 08-09 crisis, because the parallel there was you had a uh, inflation of asset values because of tax incentives. And then in 1986, the tax law changed. And so there was a regime change of anything that was valued or structured pre the tax change didn't really work in the post tax regime change. And I think the parallel here is we went through almost a decade and a half of zero interest rates. And now we have a regime change to more normalized interest rates. And I'm not talking about the low end with the Fed, but I'm talking more generally. Um, and and now we anything that was done in that, that zero interest rate environment is going to have a challenge being recapitalized um, in and, and the value around that in this new regime. And so it's going to require a reequitization. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think we've seen, um, the, the true mark to what that reequitization is across the, you know, any sector and, and frankly, what's in today in the, in the banks, because, you know, the maturations haven't yet happened and the, the need for cash and the need for workouts haven't yet happened. And so, but that, that's all coming. And, you know, it's, it's, these are typically slow moving train wrecks, but when they start picking up speed, they pick up speed very, very quickly. Um, and, and as, as, you know, as now buildings or loans start to sell and, you know, my guess is they're going to sell at more exaggerated discounts than what the norm is because the markets are so illiquid right now that will then flow into new marks, which then would demonstrate, uh, you know, the, the strain that some of the regional banks, um, CMBS and other, uh, holders under as well as equity holders, right? And that's the and I think that's what that that's what lies ahead of us right now. Well, that that starting gun that I think a lot of people are looking for, which is that those kinds of distressed sales. I think a lot of investors have been preparing themselves for a period of distress, wanting to get into the market. There seems to be a lot of capital for that, and yet at the same time, and I think it's interesting that you're paralleling to the late '80s and into the '90s and the experience we had there. Uh, there's 
there are a lot of things that seem to be different about it. Certainly the levels of leverage are significantly less than they were at that time. And the debt service coverage is much better than it was at that time, even given everything we've gone through in COVID. And I don't know if we're going to see an RTC repeat. How do you think perhaps, yes, I, I see the parallels you're talking about, but how are we different at this point than maybe we were in the late 80s? Yeah. So I, I think we're, we're different in a couple of ways, right? One is, I think, um, the particularly on the real estate side, our institutional uh, investment plumbing and infrastructure is is much more sophisticated than it was back in the early 80s and into the 90s, right? I mean, we didn't have the securitization. We didn't have the level of non-bank lenders. We didn't have the private equity funds. We didn't have the connectivity um, of the outlets to the pension systems, the retail systems, the uh, the sovereigns. So I think there's the, the, the infrastructure to address this puts the private capital in a much better spot to do it. But I'll caveat that with, while there's a lot of capital out there, there's very little liquidity. And, um, you know, I, I just uh, recently did a, a trip to Asia and the Mideast and, uh, you know, met with all the, you know, sovereigns and pensions. And this was pre the SVB crashing. And, and you could see that, you know, the, the first thing was, you know, why take a risk in these uncertain times when I could put my money and earn 5% in, you know, with government guarantees, right? And so, so that's the first. But then even the ones that were on saying, you know what, there's going to be some interesting opportunities here because of lack of liquidity. I'm interested in seeing that. Um, when the SVB thing and then the, I think particularly the Credit Suisse situation occurred, even that got pulled back, right? Because, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's a level right now of um, anxiety um, and people trying to make an assessment of how bad does this get? Uh, what losses have they had to t- take? What, you know, uh, what losses might they have to take? Um, and so I think people, you know, in, investors, institutional investors right now, are, are pausing, um, many of them, and doing that assessment. So the, the ones that are uh, unencumbered by those assessments or can be clear-eyed into this, um, I think will have some great opportunities. Uh, because I, I do believe, interestingly enough, in this period, the, the early ones in are going to actually have the, the better opportunities. Because as I said earlier, I think there's the, the initial discounts because of the lack of liquidity and the lack of certainty are going to be, um, you know, much wider than when things start to normalize because as that infrastructure starts taking hold, that will work itself through. Now, that's not, it's, no matter what, this isn't going to be quick, right? This is not like 08, where you were able to flood the market with zero uh, interest rate money and then inflate everyone and work our way through this. this is, and that's the other comparison to the early, you know, the 80s and the 90s. This is going to be an extended process um, if it goes well, right? If it doesn't become a disaster when we end up with our it should be an extended process where we're going to have to figure out, um, you know, price discovery and then who, where's the fulcrum security and then who's going to take what losses and where's the injection of recapitalization and reequitization to to move forward. And that's not, you know, we, we, we open with the office, which I think is, is obviously dealing with also with the existential hybrid work uh, circumstance around and uncertainty around that. But it's every asset class, right? You know, multifamily, you know, there's, there's been, you know, there's $450 billion of construction loans that are coming due this year. A lot of it multifamily and logistics that, again, were underwritten in a totally different interest rate environment, have costs now that have increased and have to refinance themselves in a different way than they would have before, right? So in a, in a market that's not there. So my office is really the most challenging because of the, that circumstance. 
it is across the spectrum for all um, asset classes right now. There's a, a certain amount of pain that we're going to have to acknowledge. We're going to have to acknowledge where we are before we can go forward. And as human beings and as investors, we can sometimes be really good at putting that off as long as possible. Um, what do you think is going to play out over the next, say, six months to maybe get us to that point of pain where we say, all right, that's my loss. That's where I'm going to go. Or do you think it's going to be longer than that before the market as a whole sees Yeah, I, I think um, I think it's, it's going to be longer. There's a couple of things that are happening right now, right? One is the coming off of the SVB and uh, Signature Bank, the regulators are, are really coming down much more critically yeah. on the banking systems, right? So they're looking at all their different loans, particularly the real estate, the commercial real estate loans, and trying to evaluate where there's risk today. The regional banks themselves, because of the regulators and the outflow of deposits, are proactively seeking to shrink their existing loan balances um, and either running it off, um, selling, but the, at the very least, not originating anything new generally, right? You know, and the, yeah. so you have that that cutoff in, in that mix, which is going to create its own credit crunch in the mix there. Now, if we're in a situation where the banks are forced to write down loans to marks of where they are today and then go to sell those loans, my guess is those loans are going to sell at a much greater discount than their mark. And, and that's, in my opinion, probably, while it may be more accelerated, it's probably going to be the, the most amount of damage and probably results in some federal intervention at some point because there's not going to be a way to deal with this. And again, different than 08 where, and 09 where you knew the sort of the, where the boogeymen were in terms of it's, you know, it's AIG, it's Lehman Brothers, this, you can, they were large. When you have 4,000 regional banks and then uh, non-bank lenders and insurance companies and CMBS, it's a much more pervasive, unwieldy workout, right? That takes longer to work itself through. So there are, but there are ways you can mitigate this. And one of the things that we've been advocating um, along with other members of our industry to, to uh, policymakers on is to be proactive. And the problem is, you know, government is good at reacting when there's uh, a crisis. They're really bad at proactively trying to put policies in place to prevent a crisis, right? Because the political dynamics don't work well with that, right? You know, they, they, you have to go proactively do something. So we've been trying within the box of, of not having to um, get acts of Congress per se, but what can you do, right? And so if you go back in 2009 and 2020, there was this trouble loan uh, program concept that was put in place, which effectively gave banks um, the, the room to work with borrowers to the extent they actually were putting a plan forward without having to take as much punitive charges or be forced to sell these loans down. And that would buy time. You know, in the CMBS world, changing the REMIC rules to um, make it easier for negotiation with borrowers on the uh, special servicer would be, would be helpful. Um, on, on the, on the, from a, a message from the top to the regulators that are in the banks, uh, which is identify the issues but also help identify a plan of how we can work this out at a period of time where we can create the appropriate liquidity and price discovery so to minimize the damage, right, in, the, in that context. And then I would say the last thing would be um, to actually take the agencies, Fannie and Freddie, and, and see if we can get them to double the amount of loan originations that they're doing right now and work their way into more transitioning 
multifamily loans because these are going to be the best loans they'll ever make because there's no competition and they'll be safe. But at least they could fill a void, right? And so if you could do some of those things, it could help elongate this period and give us a chance to let the the private sector work out its own problems. So owners will lose money and their equity will be cut down if that's the case. Lenders will lose money if that's the case. But at least we'll resolve these problems versus them having to end up, you know, being in a place where we have failed, um, you know, banks and then ultimately big bailouts. But this is not a small ask. It, it sounds to me. I mean, what is the reaction that you've been you've been seeing from from uh, government and regulators to these proposals? Yeah, yeah. It's it, you know part of the challenge to me, and, and I'm surprised, I guess, to me. And you know, and I sit on the the New York Fed board too, so I've been watching this and having these conversations for a period of time. Is the lack of um, up to, I would say, the last few weeks of awareness of the potential scale of the commercial real estate uh, challenges that are out there, right? And and so um, so I think th- the first piece is the education and highlighting what this means. The second piece is to um, de-villainize this, right? When you're in these situations, everyone's looking, you know, who's the villain? Who did something bad? There's no villain here, right? I mean, we there was... If anything, I would say that lenders had learned from 08, were much more conservative in their underwriting and then loans. Borrowers were much more conservative. There's more equity used than any time that I've been in the real estate industry and everything that was done. But when you have, you know, rates shoot up as quickly as they have, that's a byproduct of what's there, right? I mean, we were, none of us were making loans saying, you know, that we're, we're going to make up where we think rates were using, you know, LIBOR cor- curves or SOFA curves or treasury curves, right? We're not. So, I mean, if everyone, I think, played by the rules, but just like COVID, you know, ended up being this contagion that everyone got hit by the this spike in interest rates and the inflation, which is you know probably connected to some way to COVID, right? This whole experience is having these ramifications. So you have to de-villainize this to say, this is a, a public issue. And then, and then get away from them believing this is a bailout, right? This is the way you prevented the bailout. You prevent the bailout by having the, the stakeholders that have our own interest today, given the room to figure out how to deal with them without having to have public support. But if they don't do that, it's going to end up in a bailout, right? And that's, and I think that's the communication. So when you communicate that way, I think it, it starts to resonate um, and, you know, and we're going to continue to push um, to the, you know, the appropriate, uh, you know, the policymakers um, and hopefully see if we can get some of that, uh, that out there. And certainly it seems that in the mainstream uh, media and business media, there's a lot more attention being paid to the commercial real estate issues as they're coming up, certainly around office than maybe there were. Right. That's particularly the last two, three weeks. Right. Right. And I think that, and I think that's, that's helpful. Um, but, you know, there, listen, there is, this is this this credit crunch is happening, right? And so, um, and then you layer on that the macroeconomic environment, right? And and the you know how that plays itself out, and then of course you know the existential things like hybrid work and what that means, and the change to some of the challenges retail's facing that are more structural in nature. Um, you know these are difficult times, and so we're going to have to you have to be prepared. To navigate through, you know, I, I've I've called in, in our firm, you know, crossing the chasm to the new normal, right? We're going from the abnormal period, but you know, I when when we thought about leaving COVID to the new world, we knew it was going to be a transition, and we knew what the new you know normal was. We think we do what the new normal would look like. I didn't predict the chasm being as turbulent as I think it's turning out to be, and then you know, and there's a lot of sequence of events from the Ukraine war to the how you know the Fed's actions, et cetera. 
probably have uh, you know made that more um, uh, impactful than uh, than otherwise would have been. No doubt, um, and and I think uh, you know no one really expects these things until they happen, and then then in retrospect we go, well, yeah, of course, right? Uh, you know, it, it's part of. Let, let's go back to the, this idea of kind of this chasm and and what you have to do in order to cross this. And again, I, I said at the beginning, your transparency has been notable. And I think something that is essential, not just for the regulators and, 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 and the government to understand what we're going up to, but but all the parties to understand what we need to do and, and how we're going to share whatever pain there needs to be in order for us to get to the other side. So you came out a, a while ago, I'd, I'd say it's now been several weeks ago, talking about uh, some of the moves that you've made, and and and, and I, my favorite uh, project name of the quarter, Project Kodak. How are you approaching this change? How are you getting yourself across the chasm? I'm, I'm a big believer of an eyes wide open approach, right? You have to be intellectually honest with yourself, and then you have to be, um, you know, transparent and communicative to all your stakeholders, and 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 set strategies for your your team based on that. That, that reality that exists, right? And so uh, as we were, you know, even before this turbulence, you know, we coming to the um, conclusion that some of our buildings in, a, in, in the post-pandemic world will not be competitive. And then, you know, the comparison I make on the office space is what happened in the mall space, right? There was, you know, when e-commerce became available, you would either buy online, but you'd go to a mall if a mall can give you an experience and engagement and, and some, you know, an exciting outing. But malls that weren't able to do that or too difficult to get to or too commodity-like, you know, they were dying off. They, they were not, it was just going to be a matter of time before they became competitively obsolete. And that's sort of our view on office space. So I, I created this project, Kodak, where I said to our team, let's evaluate each of our buildings and try to determine, you know, which are digital, i.e., you know, competitive in the future, and which are film, i.e., which is going to be competitively obsolete. And, um, you know, we, it was, it was not an easy process because, as you can imagine, our team looks at each of these buildings like their own kids. So you're asking, them, who's your favorite child or who's your ugly child, right? So they, that wasn't easy. But then in the first round that came back to me had, like, almost everything was almost even. even. So we had to go get more granular and um, and then, you know, when we really went through it and looking, OK, between location, between infrastructure, between amenities, um, the, uh, the 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 uh, uh, the the neighborhood that it was in, access to public transportation and a whole we created almost like 25 different metrics. And then we weighted each of those metrics. You know, we were able to get a, a spectrum of, of digital to film and about 10 percent of our portfolio, I would characterize as film. And then within that 10 percent. What's the alternative uses, right? What can you do uh, to to uh, optimize that the the, the value uh, for that? And so we've we're working now on four different um, conversions to mixed use uh, product. Where you know one is a project in, in Brooklyn where it go for, uh, from an office complex that's fortunately in this case empty uh, because it gives the ability to do self storage, multifamily, retail. And then some uh, serviced office space with parks in between, and so it works well in that, and the floor plates work well. Then we have others that have some office tenants, and we're looking at mixed-use office on the base and multifamily on the tower, and right. And so we're we're looking at each of these buildings, trying to figure out how do we optimize that that value. And and then you know the other thing that we've done is we've augmented our team on the on looking at our our legacy portfolios. I'll call it and say, okay, 
you know, we, we need to make sure we're focusing our eye on that ball, right? That this is a, this needs an intense level of attention. So we're bringing more of our senior people, dedicating them to that. And then on the other side of the coin, we're, we're carving off a whole nother set of our team to focus on what are the opportunities? Because to me, in my history, one of the greatest costs coming out of any crisis is the opportunity cost of not taking advantage of the opportunities that come out of that crisis, right? So you can't get totally buried on dealing with the challenges and miss all those opportunities, you got to do both. And so we, we, we allocated teams that are dedicated to both. And so they get up every morning knowing what they're focused on and they have the clarity and perspective around those distinct missions uh, along the way. So, and that's, and so that's, you know, and because there is, you know, we're doing a significant amount of lending right now um, on construction loans, on multifamily, on single family rentals, on uh, good news office. And so, you know, we think that's a big opportunity here, right? These competitively obsolete properties that are out there, malls, office buildings that aren't RXRs, you know, these are great opportunities to take uh, locations that were irreplaceable locations, and you're now able to get control of them at prices and incentives that make them very compelling for an alternative use like multifamily that has these great tailwinds of, you know, of housing demand behind it, right? So that's part of how we're approaching that. You know, and I love your parallel to uh, retail and the experience that they went through. Certainly, we've known that retail was in trouble for a very long time. And there has been retail, say Fortress Retail, that has done exceedingly well. Uh, and then there's all the others. And there's a lot of zombie malls still out there, um, which has probably been just painful, so painful to go through all that. But instead of allowing something to go zombie, you're you're basically getting ahead of it and and allowing your teams to get ahead of it and and figure out what do we do with this. So I, I'm very excited about that, and I think it's the kind of thing that can keep a team together through these rough times, so that you are ready for the uh, for the inevitable opportunities of where things go. I think it's fantastic. Right. And and again, again to be again candid, right? I mean the the other challenge here is in some of these cases the 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 current capital structures, the legacy capital structures don't work, right? So part of this is you need to then have your the candid conversation with the lenders to say, listen, here's the plan that could work, but here's where the loan needs to be. And if the loan's at that number, here's the equity we'll invest to take it there. But you, but we have to all work to get there, right? And that's a difficult conversation, but you you know, it's better to have the conversation and come with a checkbook in hand, you know, if they're willing to, um, and a plan than than not right. I agree, and I, I think again, you know, part of it, part of what happens at these times is not just the the ability and the foresight to be able to invest when others are frightened, but the ability to sit down and negotiate together. I mean, I think that's where real estate really shines as an industry. We're structurally built that way. I think a lot of people outside of our industry don't understand that that the workout process, the the fact that we are work in non recourse debt. It's an essential part of how we together get somewhere as opposed to just the whole thing blowing up. And, and I think, uh, you know, that's part of what we're all supposed to do and how we're supposed to engage. I, I look forward to a day when, when the general public and regulators and everyone else understand what non-recourse lending actually means. And, and the fact that someone's giving back something is actually part of the structure, giving up your equity as a, as a way to exit a, a, a a uh, capital structure that doesn't work anymore is not only viable, it's explicitly allowed in the contracts that we engage in. And, and at some point, the world will understand this and then they'll thank us in real estate for, for leading the way. And I think, and I think this time, um, because of the circumstances that are here, where the real, where the real pressure points are, right, is there is a level of, of operational intensity 
And so for firms like RxR or other fully integrated firms, um, you know, we bring a value to the table. And it's also, you know, as a fiduciary, even if it's something from our own standpoint that we're not going to make a lot of money from doing it, we always feel compelled to our lenders or stakeholders to put those resources to work to do whatever we can to optimize the, the the value in the circumstance. So there's a significant gap in terms of pricing on a per square foot basis between what we think an office is worth and what we can get from multifamily. So we're still waiting in a lot of cases, not all cases, but in a lot of cases for those numbers to get to a point that it makes some sense. But I like the way you're talking about these as mixed use opportunities and as hybrid opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about what the opportunity with an existing office building might be and, and how you see this playing out over the next few years. The three challenges when you're trying to do these uh, conversions, right? One you touched upon, which was the price, right? Which is where's the price per foot to make it make sense. And um, and that either will get figured out by the market or you'll figure that out by demonstrating in uh, with your, your the, the lenders and your other stakeholders what that is. But the second is uh, the physical nature of the building, right? And, 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 and then the third is, um, the tenancy that's there. Who are the tenants in the in the in the building, and how can you actually get the vacant space to go through the conversion? Um, and so, you know, on the on certain on the buildings that may have large bases and but towers, you know, this concept of mixed use where you do a retail on the base, office above that, and then residential on the top, particularly where you can create separate entrances and separate lobbies. Um, and, um, you know, is, is, is the, an easier approach to deal both with the physical side and the tenant side, because you can move tenants to other parts of the building on the office. side, you don't got to vacate the whole building and you can, um, uh, you know, on, on, on a structural side, you're not trying to deal with these large floor plates that are very hard for them to be converted to, uh, to residential. Well, it'll be interesting to see. And, and I, there's been a lot of talk about it in every city in the country about that since we have a housing shortage and we seem to have an overage in terms of office, but you're right. These large floor plates are difficult. Yeah, and and we're, we're, we've been doing it with malls. You know, we, we actually uh, just uh, bought a mall in downtown White Plains outside of New York that uh, was built in 1972, set vacant for over a decade with, you know, just other had a, a, a motor vehicle department in there. And, and you know, it became from an asset a liability, right? And they, it was no longer throwing off taxes. It was loitered. Everything was built around it. There was a Ritz-Carlton hotel and residence around. It's a block away from the train station. And so the, the uh, municipality and the public wanted to see it down as well. So not only did we were able to buy it right, but then you get extra uh, density for, they give you tax incentives to do this, right? So it, you, know, you you can create public-private arrangements to help accelerate that process. And that's, you know, and, and I don't want to misstate this, and it's been, you know, I think people have had these conversations, right? This isn't going to be the solution that that resolves everything here, right? It's a, This is one element of it where you can, there's a portion of assets that can get done. There's another portion that just are going to have to be demolished fully at some point if, if, they're, uh, if, they don't, if they remain competitively obsolete. But it's a, a critical piece. A critical piece. At the same time, it seems like we have a lot of barriers that are outside of even the building itself. We're talking about zoning and municipal regulatory kind of environments. What is it that uh, more local governments, and you've been very involved in the New York government, obviously, but what is it the local governments can do to help? And perhaps more importantly, what are the things that they're likely to do that won't help um, as we try to try to provide for the demand? Let's start with the help part, right? The help part is um, provide a, a streamlined regulatory 
uh, process, right? I mean, and and they're, talk, they're having debating this up in in New York right now, which is, um, you know, if if certain buildings, certain ages, certain locations fit these characteristics, you don't need to go through the full environmental approval process, and and so you can be, you know, and you're pretty much assured you're going to be able to go through that conversion process, and so that level of certainty is very meaningful, and time is very meaningful. The second thing they could do is um, is provide tax incentives. Like in New York, we did after 9-11 in lower Manhattan, they did what was called 421G, which created incentives for conversions that you got a reduction of your real estate taxes. And again, they're debating that right now and up in Albany about uh, a program uh, similar for today, where you'd be able to abate a portion of your real estate taxes over a 30-year period. Um, or, or something like that. They're, as I said, they're working on a range of those things right now. But so that, that those would be good things. Now, what's the things that that could be bad? Right. The the, the challenge and the encumbrances that I think worry me and what I, I I frequently warn policymakers on is that they're they, they're looking at this and they're saying there's other things that we should also address. Um, like, for example, we have, you know, low income, short, shortage of low income housing. Uh, we want to make sure we're only using, uh, you know, prevailing wages. Um, we want this to be uh, net zero. Um, and so what ends up happening, they, they put on so many other requirements that it becomes economically unviable. And, and you know, my argument to the policymakers are, you know, this, this is an existential crisis for the city. And for the municipalities, and and it's not just the buildings; it's the it's the, your your tax revenue, it's a, the local restaurants, it's the local stores, it's the it's the people that live there, and, and and public safety. It's you know it's that whole ecosystem is at risk, and so you have to approach this with the level of of focus and and recognition of the severity of the issue to deal with that issue. Those other issues are important issues. But they should think of, you know, deal with them with other policies unrelated to this, because then they're not going to deal with any of those issues. Right. And I think that's one of the things that you you see lots. And I've seen in my I've served, you know, in, in uh, public and civic service before. And when I what I always see is that there's these situations where there's these well-intended uh, policies that are put in place, but they don't realize what are the unintended consequences that ultimately, you know, undermine what the purpose of that policy was to start with. Right? And usually it's not just one, usually they're layering on, layering on, layering on, and uh, it ends up undermining the, the, you know, what they were trying to achieve. And that's, that's the, and again, it's more nuanced, but I mean, I've seen this over and over and over again. Um, and California is probably the, the most uh, obvious place where you see this a lot right now. So that, that, that's the key, I think, is to stay focused on what the issue is. And, and if they do that, they can you know, accelerate what could be a 20 year problem and bring it to something that's a, you know, a five to 10 year process that creates a lot of jobs when you need the jobs to be created. Right. And it seems to me that, that there, there are plenty of examples of it actually working where, you know, the government and the private sector are working together. Well, I'm thinking about the development of, of Midtown East that's occurring. Certainly in, you know, one Vanderbilt was, I think a great success story in terms of public private and, and the experience I assume that you're having with 175 Park as you're working to develop that. You know, I mean, I, and I use that example perfect because there's a great example where, uh, you know, Manhattan, New York City did this overlay of around Grand Central and said this, you know, the East Midtown rezoning. So we have here's we have this, this, the biggest transportation hub 
uh, in the country, but we have all this old office stock. We got to get rid of the office stock. And they said, okay, here's the ground rules, right? If you have buildings that are located within this district and you're willing to do a certain level of infrastructure and transit improvements, we're going to increase your buildable area, your FAR, by a certain amount. And you also have the right to sell to other people. And they created a market, right? They created the, 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 the ground rules that then the private sector could activate. And that's why JP Morgan's building the building their, their building, right? That's why we're building 175 Park and SL Green and other ones are looked at in that area. And so it's a great model of if you can, you know, put that roadmap out there, then the, the, the free market will, will, will ultimately find a way to get it done. And it, it's really tremendous to see the incredible amount of interest in that kind of office environment, even in a post-COVID hybrid office environment, that these areas that are right on top of Grand Central, that are right in this area, seem to be the areas to be able to build the best office buildings of the future. And, and, and which is so great as a model is there's they're creating billions of dollars of transit improvements that are being funded by the private sector, right? So and we're doing $450 million ourselves of transit improvement. So Green did, I think, $250 million dollars you know, JP Morgan did over $400 million, right? And that's just three projects. Think about, right? And so they're really enhancing this, the, for the general public, the, the infrastructure all around Grand Central. So it, it is possible to work with government in a positive way. It's, it's not always that they're the problem. It's that we just have to somehow get everyone around the same table. Right. Well, like. and it starts with having the right policies, right? That's the key. Right. So yeah, we're in, in tough times. We're, we're still maybe in the, the first part of hell. You know, we've got a little bit more hell, a lot more hell maybe to go through as we go forward. Uh, what are you looking for in terms of the light? What are you excited about over the next, say, 10-year period, not just over the next couple of years? I, I, as I look at things, I think there's, in the near term, these are going to be extraordinary opportunities. Again, when you look back in the early um, uh, you know, 90s and where there was a tremendous investment opportunities that came out of that period, um, I think we're going to see the same thing today because out of distress and dislocation, people that are you know, uh, close to it, well-capitalized um, and, and uh, have the, uh, the both the uh, it, perspective and uh, in, in, in endurance and, and, and the conviction, right, to, to pursue it, do well. So I'm excited actually for these next couple of years. But you know, I'm, I'm also a big believer that when we get to the other side of this chasm, that um, we're in for some extraordinary times. So I think the, what the chasm's doing is it's clearing the underbrush of all that liquidity and free money that was, uh, you know, was, was in our system that sort of distorted the reality of where investments were going. And so now we're going to have this, I think, much firmer foundation, much more responsible uh, allocation of capital uh, of where it's going in terms of, what, and, and, and most productive, more productive, productive probably is better where they're responsible. And then I would say, when I think about the, the macro environment, um, you know, I, I've been a believer that the U.S., uh, when we get to that next phase, is going to be in for what I call this great recalibration, which was sort of like after post-World War II, this is a post-COVID, right? These gr in incredible innovations in science and technology um, that will now be harnessed and harvested and you know, through the economy. Um, and then you have the whole decarbonization and deglobalization, which are onshoring and investments and the, and the digital transformation investments that are happening so I think there's just going to be a, um, a decade plus of above trend growth 
uh, as we go through that transition. And we're going to see a, a real increase in our in our productivity um, and, and a, you know, and a big leap uh, forward for our, for our country. So it's, I think it's going to be a really good investment opportunity if you're focused on, you know, where those trends are and where those the, those demand drivers are and where they intersect with real estate. So, you know, so I'm, I'm not taking my eye off that ball because I think that's really where the uh, the next uh, you know part of our, our future is. That's exciting to hear. And I think it is important for people to, re- to, to be disabused of the notion that any kind of change and recalibration is easy. It's hard. It's painful. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't do it because on the other side, we've got something Pretty interesting. I, I would have to agree with you that it seems like we're doing some very necessary work that maybe we've been putting off as as a as a society. The the, the developed world has been saying, you know, it's it, it it's not great, but we're okay. And now we have to actually transition. We've got to transition all sorts of things. We have to transition our energy grid. We've got to transition our economy. We have to transition our built environment. Um, so it's exciting. You know, I've I've been saying to students lately that this may be the most exciting time to be in real estate at least in my career over the last 40 years, in that it's really not doing exactly what it did 10 years ago and 10 years before that, that, that we are in a different environment. Right. And, and to your point for students, and I say this frequently when I meet with students or young professionals, they're actually better positioned than, than most of us, right? Because they're not burdened um, by us who've been doing this for 40 years with a, a view of, uh, you know, of what, what it was. They have a, a, you know, a clear sense of what's happening and their understanding of the technological innovations and the utilization and adoption of new technologies is much more um, natural to them than it would be to us. Couldn't agree more. We're at a time where we need clarity of thought and clarity of vision. So thank you, Scott, for spending some time with us here on the AFR podcast. Uh, We've been speaking with Scott Reckler. He's the uh, chairman and chief executive officer of RxR um, and a proud member, I hope, of AFIRE. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Gunnar. I appreciate it. You have been listening to the eFire podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. eFire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell an asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources, and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.